welcome to the preaching ministry of Port St. Lucie Bible Church. We are a Christian church whose goal is to faithfully preach Christ from Scripture so that we might better love and serve Him. We pray that this message from God's Word would engage your mind with the truth and inspire your heart to obey Christ. Here's today's message. Well, we're in Haggai chapter 1. Again today, this will finish this chapter and our passage <laughs> well, it is just filled with profound truth about demonstrating obedience by those who are truly God's people. The text is very optimistic. And as we find with the word of the Lord, we see in chapter 1, there's, there's a logical progression. God begins with exposing the sin in the heart of every man and woman in Judea as they had become absorbed with renovating their own private properties. If you remember from a couple weeks ago. Next then, God reasons with this people, showing grace, reasons with them through showing them how, well, they're striving for this prosperity. It only left them dissatisfied in every way. Next, in verse 12, God instructs every generation, all of us, through describing the reaction of a remnant, of those who had returned to the land of Judea. Uh, every, every reasonable person reading this passage should come to the same conclusion, uh, should come to the same rational response. And it leaves only one option for those who are in covenant with the Lord God. Again, elevating earthly pursuits and passions, verse 4, above divine priorities. It, it makes God angry. God gets angry. Zechariah chapter 1, verse 4 tells this same group of people, a, a different prophet to this same group. He says, Return now, the Lord says, from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. So God, God isn't pleased with what they have done, but in an exercise of His grace, God conveys through His Word, we will see, that which angers Him. God, God doesn't leave us unawares. Well, I wonder if this pleases God or doesn't. Uh, no, God speaks directly through telling us what to do and how to respond. And verse 6, since focusing on our earthly pursuits, who hasn't experienced that here? Since focusing on our earthly pursuits had just repeatedly proven to, to leave us dissatisfied again and again, uh, what else then is there for God's people to do? There exists only one rational conclusion after these indictments Obey the voice of the Lord and build. The response observed in verses 12 through 15, it supplies us with much optimism. Uh, the passage provides, provides me as a pastor a, a, a high confidence about where God has led us to this day as a congregation and what He will do tomorrow through Port St. Lucie Bible Church. This is, a, this is an extraordinary response that I am about to read. 
Uh, yet we who live in the church age possess an enormous advantage over this group so many hundreds and thousands of years ago. We have such an advantage over what these ancient Jews had, and we will progress to that point today and then into the next chapter. I'll give you just a quick overview. There doesn't need to be any suspense. We enjoy a far better covenant than anything that Israel enjoyed. That covenant, covenant is obsolete. We're far better off in our covenant. Uh, we have received the full canon of Scripture. There's less guesswork than any other generation before Christ and His apostles. So we have the Bible complete, and we have the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit, something that was not given to Israel under the Old Covenant. These, these are big things. Big things. Uh, admittedly, this passage describes what happened in ancient Israel, uh, but in case you, you've missed the last couple Sundays, Zechariah chapter 3 assures that their building of a physical temple in Jerusalem, it, it serves of a symbol of the temple that Christ will build and is building today, not by might, nor by man's power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. God is building. And in verse 12, the people respond. It says, Then Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people showed reverence for the Lord. Then Haggai, the, the messenger of the Lord, spoke by the commission of the Lord to the people, saying, I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. They did it on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of Darius the king. That is a stunning response. You probably have noticed how the leaders are the first among those taking God's word very seriously. If the leaders don't show a supreme reverence for the word of God and in all that he has spoken, uh, your local church is not going to do well. It becomes an empty shell of world philosophy and family traditions. Here's what will happen. I had some experience growing up with this. On Sunday, the children will ask the parents, why do we do this? The response is, well, son, because we've always done this. Like many of you, I grew up in a formal liturgy. There are some nice things about a formal liturgy. Follow the correct order, 
wear the right seasonal vestments, for goodness sake, make sure you light the right colored candle during the season of Lent. Nobody in the pews knew why we were doing such things, uh, and nowhere in God's Word are there any instructions for it, because God never asked us to do it. Um, Sadly, looking back now, it kind of reminds me of the story of Nadab and Abihu from Leviticus chapter 10, uh, the sons of Aaron, the high priest. It says they took their respective fire pans, that's a, a pan with heat, hot coals in it. Uh, they took their respective fire pans and after putting fire in them, they placed incense on it and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Well, that'd be quite a day. God was angry. But in context, we have to understand, if you read chapter 9, that that Aaron, the high priest, had just finished the first sin offering. The priesthood in Israel had had received the stipulations of the offerings, and they had just completed what God had offered them to do for Atonement for forgiveness of sins. That's chapter 9. In chapter 10, the sons of the priests say, we're going to throw on a little bit extra. What do you think of this? They were adding immediately after the sin offering had been given. God's like, I never asked for that. I never commanded you to add on to what I have done. Much the reason that we see in Scripture that that grace by faith rather than works is the way that we enjoy our salvation. We don't add on to what Christ has done at the cross. It's one of the reasons I'm thankful uh, that God, uh, after He opened my wife Rita and my hearts through faith, that He led us to a Bible church. Uh, It was a lot like this one. Uh, It's not the only style of church, but it is much like us, which asks every week, what has God said? That's the goal every week. What, what has God said? He has spoken. And this chapter, <laughs> Haggai chapter 1, is one of the most foundational texts ensuring scriptural, scriptural inerrancy for all that God has said. Twice we read in verses 1 and 3, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai. Twice in verses 2 and 5 we read, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts. God speaks verbatim through his prophets. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 21, this is the New Testament view on it, uh, assures the the way in which we have received every written text, every written prophecy of Scripture, quote, was never through an act of the human will, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So the source of the Word of God is inerrant and divine. If you you recoil at that idea, um, 
boy, I'm, I'm obliged, obliged to tell you that you stand opposed to the living God who has spoken through his word. I watched a, a short video this past week. If you want me to forward it to you after this is over, let me know I will. Short video of John MacArthur. Did you hear that he got invited to Madonna's home? It's true. It's true. He did. After hearing MacArthur in a Q&A session, which many of us have watched, Guy Ritchie, Madonna's husband, invited John MacArthur to come to their home. On a side note, when asked how he prepares for those questions during a Q&A, uh, John MacArthur said this, I don't prepare. I don't care what the people will ask. I only care about what I'm going to tell them. And he says, I'm going to tell them two things. First, God's word is fully divine and inerrant, without error. And secondly, Christ died for the sins of all who will believe. Jesus doesn't suffer and die for the sins of those who won't believe, who refuse to exercise faith through his word. Uh, that would be double jeopardy. If Christ died and they too go to hell to suffer for their own sins, no, God didn't die for the sins of those who do not believe. That's universalism, if you take that track. So we, we have limited atonement at the cross, limited to a remnant, limited to those who believe. Oh, back to the story. You wanted to hear about John MacArthur. You want to know what Guy Ritchie said to John MacArthur. He told John, quote, as quoting MacArthur, You are so dogmatic, you are throwing off the universe's equilibrium. <laughs> After Guy finished, you know what John told him? God's word is perfect and without error. And Christ died for the sins of everyone who will believe. It's that straightforward. The reason, this is so essential, it's because if you don't believe that God has spoken intelligently and authoritatively, you know, if you think God is a mute and doesn't speak, and if you don't believe that he has spoken, um, you're going to conclude that this is just stuff that we talk about that guys like Pastor John make up. Oh, that's, that's just something that those pastors talk about. And then you will never obey God's word, through which you must prove that you belong to his remnant. Obedience to what God the Father has spoken is what qualifies us to belong in his family. Let me show you. Look at me at verse 12. Zerubbabel, well, and Joshua, and with all the remnant of the people, don't miss that. Verse 12 does not apply to all the people who are in the land, only a believing remnant that is in the land. What did this remnant do in verse 12? Well, it says they, quote, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God 
and the words of Haggai the prophet as their Lord, uh, as the Lord their God had sent him. As the Lord had sent Haggai. The remnant obeyed what? Well, we've learned in the past couple weeks a command in verse 8. Uh, the voice of the Lord, we know, uh, a command to go up into the hills, cut down some trees, rebuild the temple. Just as God had spoken through Haggai. Folks, Holy Scripture makes zero distinction between what God says and what the prophet has said. It is the voice of God Himself recorded on the pages of Scripture. And this underscores divine inspiration of all prophetic literature. All Scripture is God-breathed, we are told. So the New Testament affirms the Old Testament as being inerrant. And the Bible contains God's voice. It is Him speaking. There's no middle ground in Christianity for that. It's even restated in verse 13. Then Haggai the messenger of the Lord, spoke how? By the commission of the Lord to the people saying, God's words, I am with you, declares the Lord. So Haggai is speaking by commission the exact words of the Lord God. That's what a prophet does. He speaks on behalf of God. In fact, a true definition of prophecy, as I have uh, um, well, accentuated or emphasized uh, many number of times here, to prophesy uh, does not mean to tell the future. The biblical, the Hebrew definition and the Greek definition of prophesy means to speak for God. It may have a future element in it that has something about the future which the people had not known. But to prophesy does not mean that. It means to speak on behalf of God. Uh, hence, to directly disobey what God has written in His Word, uh, it's to not heed God's voice. It's to not hear Him or listen to His voice. By the way, the Hebrews 12 verse 26 quote, uh, it, it quotes Haggai. Quotes Haggai chapter 2, which we're going to begin looking at next week. Hebrews quotes Haggai chapter 2 by saying, And his voice, speaking of the voice now, And his voice shook the earth then, meaning back in the days past, but now he has promised, this is under the new covenant, saying, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven." What then does God shake the earth with? Same thing he did then. His voice. It's his word that goes out and shakes the earth to separate his holy remnant from those who disobey. The remnant that we are observing is God's elect. It's his chosen who belong to him through faith. Uh, the elect are always identified in Scripture as those who have obeyed God's Word. The remnant in this passage identified those who obeyed God's command to begin building. Pretty simple. Peter 
Verhoff, he's an Old Testament theologian from South Africa, uh, master's degree in Semitic languages, Hebrew languages, uh, very, uh, very well learned man. He says about this Hebrew term remnant, quote, the term does not of itself describe either those who returned from exile or those who remained in the land, but all who survived to be the true Israel. Well, what is that? He says, those who obeyed the word of the Lord were the remnant as the representatives of God's own people. How did they prove they were the remnant? They obeyed what the Lord had said. Folks, God's remnant, it never refers to the whole, but identifies only a part. R.C. Sproul agrees with Verhoff, uh, stating that a remnant is, again, quote, a common term used by the prophets for those people, uh, those of God's people who remain faithful to him in the midst of unbelief. Paul later points to a faithful remnant in Israel, says Sproul, uh, Jews who have embraced Christ. That would include those who are Jew and Gentile who have embraced Christ. We become the believing remnant. In other words, among all of the people who had returned from Babylon and are now uh, repopulating Israel, there is only a remnant who obeys God's voice and through whom God works. Why do they, why do they obey? Well, the text tells us why they obey. God proactively stirs their spirits. In verse 14, it says, So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judea, and he stirred the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and he stirred the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and they worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. They came. They obeyed. The conclusion, therefore, is that God builds His temple through stirring the hearts, the spirits of the believing remnant. That's how God builds. Well, what does that imply? Well, it reveals to us as a church that, that not everyone within earshot will obey through joining in the work. Not everyone's going to join in the work of the Lord. Don't be surprised that some won't. Uh, or else Haggai would have just simply said much easy, uh, easier uh, or more easily, and then all the people obeyed. But rather what Haggai actually stated twice for clarity in this passage in verses 12 and 14 is, all of the remnant of the people obeyed. Follow me? Uh, you get it. You're smart people. Yeah. We'll get to application for the church in just a minute. Um, but before we do, uh, there is a vital understanding uh, that, that just skimming over this passage won't provide us. Uh, verses 12, 13, and 14, they, they, do not, they do not supply a strict chronological 
progression. The markers aren't there in the Hebrew um, to affirm that definitely this is first, then there's second, and then there's third. Do you follow me? It would be incorrect, it'd be an incorrect conclusion uh, to propose that the Israelites obeyed first in verse 12 because they feared first in verse 13, and then only afterward God then stirred their spirits. Uh, that is not accurate. That's not an accurate rendering of the Hebrew. Uh, John Calvin finds that idea preposterous uh, by saying, quote, Foolishly then, do they imagine that the Israelites were led by their own free will to obey the word of God, and then that some aid of the Holy Spirit followed to make them firmly to persevere in their course? said no, but the prophet declared in the first place that this message was respectfully received by the people, and now he explains in verse 14 how it all came to pass. So verse 14 is, so this is how it all came to pass. And virtually all my scholarly resources agree that the stirring of their spirits did not come last. Rather, it came first. And what verse 14 supplies then is a summary statement of what had prompted the people to obey and to achieve God's sovereign work. This is what prompted them to obey in the first place. God stirred the spirits of his remnant first as he is sovereign over the people and their will. Uh, there's no question this is so. We see this in the New Testament repeated again and again. It's the same principle as revealed during our earlier scripture reading from Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, in that context of God's sovereign election and predestination, God's choice, that's in chapter 1. Ephesians 2 assures that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Dead is the Greek term necros. Spiritually, we were in a, a state of necrosis, corpse. And, and Paul continues by saying we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. That's what we pursued previously in a course of sensuality. So we were not only a dead corpse unresponsive to God, we were totally depraved, opposed to and incapable of responding to God's voice. We didn't even want to hear God's voice before we were saved. But in verse 5, even when we were dead in our transgressions, God made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved and raised up with Him. God's grace that made us alive. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, meaning faith isn't some latent quality that we possess and just arises whenever we feel, uh, feel goosebumps from within. No, instead, faith is the gift from God. Not as a result of our works, so that no one may boast... And what is it all for? Don't miss that. 
What's it all for? Question is answered in, in verse 10. What did God raise the dead for? He said, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Again, sovereignty. God had it all planned in advance. Providence, as Ken was sharing earlier. Works is why God raised us. Therefore, you know, it's not our natural will that serves the Lord. It is God's will that works through us by His Spirit, uh, which is why Paul stated in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 12, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So they're already saved when Paul makes this statement. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. God gets all the credit. We get zero. Yet He shares with us the reward. Well, that is grace. Grace greater than our sin. Final analysis God always builds through stirring his remnant. Not a ton has changed. We obey because it is God himself who is the divine cause who works in us to achieve his will. The greatest contrast that we see between the Old Testament and the New is uh, how we see in this passage that God stirred their spirits. So God stirred and its focuses their spirits, whereas today, following Pentecost, God's Spirit permanent, permanently indwells his, spirit, uh, his people today. God indwells us so that we might have an advantage over what the Israelites enjoyed. Therefore, we have tremendous advantages that we'll continue to discuss uh, in chapter 2, beginning next Sunday. We're way better off than these people who just built a block temple, a stone and, and block temple. We have all kinds of advantages. Finally, I'm going to jump ahead here just a little bit. What I will say is God... Uh, in obedience to God, don't pat yourself on the back. It's all Him working through us by His Spirit, and He refuses to share His glory with anyone, including us. God is at work in us. In verse 13, God's moving back into their zip code. Even before the temple is complete, he's taking up residence in their midst. Remember in the Old Testament that previously God would 
His spirit would take the form of a cloud or as a pillar of fire, and he would take up residence in his temple. He's saying, now I'm taking up residence already. Temple isn't even finished yet. And he says to them in verse 13, I am with you, declares the Lord. Uh, This statement repeated, it will be repeated in chapter 2. Boy, it serves as the greatest reassurance. The supreme reassurance possible that the temple will be completed just as the Lord had spoken through the prophets. The prophets had said it will be completed. Daniel, other prophets, Zechariah. Uh, folks, he's building in Israel. Uh, by comparison, is God living in our zip code today? Oh. Yeah. Is he ever? Under the new covenant in the spirit of Christ, he's living inside of us, giving us the ability to always be keyed in on what God is doing. It's how we can pray without ceasing. Always thinking about, can again, perfect lead in. You don't know what the circumstances are, why you got the flat tire, or why somebody else did. God is weaving and working through His providence that He might save some. And He says, I am with you. And Christ lives inside of us. And like God the Father had reassured Israel, today God the Son still says, Lo, I am with you always even to the end of the age. It isn't here and then gone. He's with us always. And go therefore and make disciples of all nations, and baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. It's Matthew 28. Folks, that is how we build the temple during the New Testament, under the new covenant. And it's the reason that we preach Christ to you and everyone today. Do you then suppose that God is still stirring spirits to build? Or is He just kind of given up on that? Is Christ's spiritual temple, which 1 Corinthians 3 describes uh, as a temple that He is building, gold and silver in there, and He's, he's calling people, the church, uh, to build them. Um, is that finished? Is the building project done? Christ hasn't come yet. So you better bet that he hasn't finished. And God's spirit is alive and he is still living here. He's right here. There is a, there is a spatial phenomenon concerning the Holy Spirit and the presence of the Spirit, I'm not sure yet that I fully grasp it. But Scripture assures us that God is omnipresent. That means He's present everywhere all the time. That's how He's all-knowing and omniscient. Yet there is also a place where God dwells. Jacob said in Bethel, Surely the Lord is in this place. He goes, I didn't even know it. 
That's in Genesis 28, 16. What did the Lord tell Jacob? He said, I'm with you. There was a time before faith when you and I were dead in our trespasses and sins, when God did not dwell within us, but upon receiving Christ as our Savior through faith, And the words of the gospel, Ephesians 1 verse 13 says, Now God's Spirit has sealed you. You are now God's. You're His possession. And then going into chapter 2, And He's at work. And He's created things for us to do. I'm not sure exactly how to fully explain it, but while we are assured that God is omnipresent and He is everywhere, Scripture, nonetheless, clearly reveals that God's presence is not equally everywhere. There are places His Spirit is determined to dwell. And God is present at this church. And He is living amongst His remnant. And folks, He's stirring us to build. As God spoke to Israel through Haggai, Christ's Spirit is speaking again to us today through His Word. Folks, it is time to build. And we're not talking about brick and mortar. We're not talking about a big budget and a a large building to kick it all off. It's not like Vegas. You don't just say, well, we build it and they'll come. Maybe they won't come. Churches have experienced that before. Right, Steve? I believe they'll come. I believe God is spirit, God's Spirit is stirring through us, and the people are going to come because His Word works through us. And He sees we're ready. We're ready to build. I'm very optimistic about this. As, uh, as Jesus said to His disciples, Who do you think that I am? Peter responded, Well, thou art the Christ. You're the Son of the living God. And Jesus affirmed that revelation that he is the Messiah of Israel, saying, upon this rock I will build my church. He is building it through us. He says the gates of hell don't have a chance. Therefore, we build by proclaiming that Jesus is indeed, he is the Christ, he is the Savior, the Son of the living God, the Savior of the world. We preach Christ. As I stated from the outset of this this short two-chapter Haggai series, boy, I have optimism. I have optimism because I believe God's remnant will obey His voice and build. Once we have seen it in His Word, we will build. Folks, go invite your community to church. As Ryan said earlier, you got the tract, don't forget to point them the where to. Don't forget to pray for them. These uh, attached prayer cards that we have, use them. Witness to somebody, and then we're collecting them on Wednesday night. Drop the prayer cards in the offering boxes or bring it on Wednesday night, and we're praying by name for the people we witness to. Get their first name. Get their first name. Say, yeah, 
My name's John. What's your first name? Bob. Great. There's a personal response there. You don't have to ask them for a whole lot of information and freak them out. Ask them who they are. So we'd love for you to come to church. We'd love for you to meet everybody here. Life got you down. Come see us. Go invite people. Graciously tell them, with kindness but urgency, Christ died for your sins. But also that you must believe the gospel. Share the gospel tracts. Use them. There's another style of tract in there. Get your own if you don't like anything we've got. Share the gospel. Jesus commanded, go into the highways and the byways. Compel everyone to come in so that my house may be full. Well, that's a command. You compel them to come. I'm joining you in compelling them to come. We pray for them Wednesday night, a focus on prayer. And then your elders promise we will proclaim the gospel and forgiveness of sins every single Sunday through word, prayer, and song. We're not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation. Serve. Help Tim. Help the maintenance team, keeping the place warm, attractive, and inviting. When our guests arrive, you, and you are most wonderful at this, what I always hear from new people is the people are so nice and sincere, and you truly are. Don't forget, though, notice people as they come in. Welcome them. Answer their questions. Help them to integrate. Uh, if you can play a musical instrument or sing well, then serve in music. If you don't, well, then please don't. <laughs> music, an important ministry. The gospel was clearly shared in the music today. Build. Build by becoming strong and very courageous with the gospel. And be winsome. And expect great things. Evangelism is God's will and you are God's remnant. It's time to build. It's time to build. If a few do not join in from our lesson, if a few don't want to join, don't be distracted and discouraged by onlookers. Israel had to build that temple even if there are bystanders. Not all built and not obeyed in Israel. Don't let what a few others fail to do dictate your obedient response to God's command. It's always God's remnant who responds. As Hebrews 25 assures, the remnant will be here each Sunday and we will stimulate and encourage one another to love and good deeds just as God sent His word by Haggai and Zechariah to encourage the builders to continue to build and not lose heart. That is our next passage in chapter 2 and next week. Haggai now encourages them through the word of the Lord. Uh, the people have, re in that text, have responded to build. Next, Haggai is going to encourage them, persevere. Do it, keep going. And uh, we are going to take forth the gospel and win souls for the glory of God's kingdom. That's what we're going to do. Go win people to Christ and build.
it's time to build. And we invite you to join us. Let's pray.